Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. It is by the name of Jesus that any person is saved, that every person who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. If that's you today, if you've never come to know him, if you don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ, you cry out, Jesus. It is by the name of Jesus that the spirits of darkness must flee. If you're in a battle, proclaim the name of Jesus over your life, over your home, over your family. It is Jesus who is the healer, who heals your broken heart, who heals your every wound, who heals your scars, gives you hope. It is the name Jesus, the one who saves, the name that is above every name before whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Proclaim the name of Jesus wherever you go. In your life, in the darkness around you, over the lives of others, that there would be hope and life. Well, I started a new series last weekend entitled, What If? And it's really about the idea that there are a lot of what if questions that occur in our lives at any time. And really as you journey through life, there are a lot of what if questions you should ask. Sometimes the same question you should ask repetitively. In other words, am I on the right path? Am I pursuing the right dreams? Do I have the right motives? What if I have gone off track in some way? What if I'm missing what God has called me to? You see, there are a lot of what if questions. And the foundation for this entire series is this one scripture in the book of Mark which says, what good is it for a man to gain the entire world yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for a person to acquire everything possible in this life to accomplish all that they set out to accomplish and yet forfeit their soul? And of course, the way in which that could occur most grievously is a person who was a success in this world but never came to know Christ, never came to understand what it meant to walk with the living God, 
and in so doing forfeited their very soul. But what concerns me perhaps as much, if not more, is that there are people, I believe, who have salvation, who genuinely know Christ, yet are pursuing dreams or living lifestyles that are not truly God's will for them. And the consequence is, is that they are forfeiting at least a portion of their soul, forfeiting what God's best would be for them. And so I would hope that most of you already know Christ, but the question has to do with, are you on the path that he has identified for you? Are you honoring him, walking in his will, or are in some way you forfeiting some portion of your soul? In talking about this last week, I said that there are several reasons that a person can forfeit their soul. The first of which is that you live by wrong assumptions or presumptions. In other words, you assume certain things are important or what really matters or what you should place as a priority and you've got some wrong assumptions there and many people do that, perhaps all of us do it at some point, that you might have the wrong worldview, that your worldview is accumulated by all the experiences you have in life, all the things you've learned. And of course, the culture shapes your worldview. And if you lived at a different time period, your worldview might be a little bit different than it is in the culture in which we live. In fact, I think a Christian has to fight against being swayed by the culture in your thinking. That it's so influential, all the things around us, that you have to really fight against the darkness, the deception, in order to have a worldview that is godly. And your worldview serves as a filter for how you look at life and how you make choices. And if that is somehow or another askew, then you could be forfeiting something in your very soul. And then, of course, if those first two things are true, you're likely to make some poor decisions, undertake some actions that are ungodly, and apply your life in ways that really could lead to regret. Now, we talked about this with one or several examples last week, but one in particular in the scripture in Matthew, where Jesus is saying that not every person who comes to him and declares his name will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It says that only he who does the will of my father will actually enter into heaven. That there are those who declare, Lord, Lord, but Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. In fact, what bothers me there, it says many will say, not just a few, but many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform miracles? In other words, didn't we do substantial things in the name of some God? And yet Jesus would say, away from me, I never knew you. See, there'd be no more grievous thing than to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be there without any hope because you have forfeited your soul during this life by not knowing Christ. I mentioned last week when I was talking to this young man when I was out of town who was 33 years old, he, he wasn't a believer, had all the standard arguments against why he shouldn't believe. And I simply said to him, what do you think happens after death? And he said, well, like a dog, you just die, you cease. Well, 
What I responded was, I think when you die, you appear before the judgment seat of Christ and you'll give an account for your life. And what an overwhelming thing to think that you'll appear before the one who created all things and give an account for your life. And this scripture says that some will hear away from me. But if you know him, if Christ lives within you, if you have called upon his name and the spirit of God is with you, then you don't fear that moment of judgment. In fact, you look forward to seeing Christ face to face. Paul said, now we look through a glass dimly, but then we will see him face to face, the glory of God. It's like on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was there and he was transformed and Peter, James, and John saw that, they saw the glory of God. Well, they only got a glimpse, but eventually we will see him face to face. And so this whole series is about, are you doing what really matters? Are you living in such a way that you can appear before the judgment seat of Christ, first, not confident in your own works or confident in your own ability, but confident in Christ, but also recognizing that you have sought to honor him and sought to do his will in this journey. And so what I wanna talk about this week is the what if question of what if I succeed Now, there's a critical word in all of that. The word is success. Because how you define success would determine how you answer that question. And there are some people who might have thought of themselves as successes in this world who failed. There's some people who have failed in different things in this world, but God sees them as a success. Because God's methodology and his approach for measuring success is radically different from that of the world. The world measures success by accomplishments, titles, wealth, things you acquire, your notoriety, how influential you are. There are a lot of things that the world would say, these mean success, but they might not. In in preparing this teaching, I happened to think of a gentleman that I met a long time ago. I met him when I was in high school and I had a summer job. And my summer job was at a hospital, but it was simply doing groundskeeping. I just worked outside and did things like that. And there was a man who worked there in that department who did groundskeeping work, custodial work, things like that. And in those days, he was referred to as being deaf and dumb. Now, I don't think we use those terms anymore in modern culture, but that meant someone who could not hear and someone who could not speak. Now he could hear some sounds and he could sort of speak. He could make sort of groaning sounds that would indicate your name or something like that. And he could understand. But given his limited physical abilities, he had done this type of work all of his life. Now, in the eyes of the world, 
many people might not have considered him a success, that he lacked ability or opportunity or capacity. But it's interesting that I believe the Spirit brought him to my mind in thinking about this. Because what I did see in that man, and if I remember correctly, and my memory might be wrong about this, but I think he was married, and I saw him as a person who cared about others, who was very loving and kind and encouraging to each of us who worked with him. There were some other young people who worked with him. And in many respects, he may have been a far better model of Christ than a lot of church people, than a lot of religious people. In other words, the scripture says that it is through our weakness that Christ is strong. And we all have weaknesses, but sometimes God gives somebody a very special weakness in order that he might reveal himself more strongly through them. Take Joni Erickson Tata, who became paralyzed when she was uh, in her late teens because of a, a diving accident. That now for over 40 years, she's lived as a quadriplegic, but God has certainly revealed himself very, very powerfully through her. And you see, when I'm talking about success, I'm not talking about worldly success. I'm talking about, are you a success in the kingdom of God? Are you a person through whom the spirit of God works profoundly into the lives of others where people encounter Christ when they encounter you? See, that's a very, very interesting question. Do people encounter Christ when they encounter you? They should. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within you. His fruit should be overflowing in your life. If he's in charge of your life, when the Spirit of God, when other people encounter you, they should encounter the Spirit of God. They should encounter Christ. His love, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his genuineness, his truth in you. Now, it's interesting, if we go to the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrote these words. He said, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of our lives. Now, you have to think about Solomon himself he was the king of the nation of Israel at the time that Israel was probably at its zenith, at its highest point. That his father David had really brought the nation to that place and Solomon had the opportunity to rule sort of on the benefactors of what David had done. And yet he was a person who was given great wisdom because God asked him, you can pray for whatever you desire. And he said, give me wisdom to rule, which pleased God. God not only gave him wisdom, he gave him honor and long life. But here's a person who was very wealthy, had great position and power and even notoriety and fame. 
And he said, I wanted to determine what is worthwhile for men to do in the few days of our lives. Now, if you're a very young person, you may think the days of your lives are almost infinite. But if you lived a few decades, you realize that the days of our lives move extraordinarily quickly. And the longer you live, the more quickly they seem to move. I think that's because when you're very, very young, one day is a pretty large fraction of your journey. But as you get relatively old, one day is a small portion. And it just seems to pass quickly. So Solomon said, in order to evaluate this, that he undertook great projects. He built houses for himself and planted vineyards. Now, if you think about it, he was the one who was given the privilege of building the temple of God. David wanted to build a temple, but God said to him he could not because what? He was a man who had shed blood. But Solomon was given the opportunity to build this temple, the very, very special place where the people of Israel would come to make sacrifices and worship God, a portion of which, the foundation of which is still there in Jerusalem. And he did this, but he also built for himself a great palace, a mansion. In this case, it says he built houses. Actually, who did the building? Probably Solomon did not do a lot of chiseling on the rock. When he said, I built houses, he really meant I had servants and slaves who built them for me. And I planted vineyards and I made gardens and, and parks. That he had all kinds of fruit trees and he made reservoirs to water them. What does that sound like to me? It's like, in my mind, the best I can envision that would be like that would be to go to, to the Biltmore. Because there are the, all the lavish places outside and they're beautiful, the gardens and so forth and it's an extraordinary building, but I don't think the man who was behind the building did much of the work. But in this case, Solomon did all of these things. He said he bought male and female slaves and, and that they were born in his house. In other words, he had lots and lots of servants. Slavery in those days was a, a, an indebtedness or a bondedness where you, sometimes it was voluntary, sometimes they were purchased. It was different probably from what we would think of as slavery in the early part of America, but nonetheless, this was part of what he did. It says that he owned herds and flocks, and he did so more than anyone in Jerusalem before him. In other words, he's saying that I had more than anyone who had ever been in Jerusalem. That if Forbes was making a list of the wealthiest people in all the land, he'd be right at the top. He said he amassed silver and gold for himself, the treasure of kings and provinces. Now he's not, he's not speaking boastfully, he's speaking truthfully because he is so wealthy, so powerful, he can do whatever he wants to do. He says he acquired men and women singers, that he had a harem, he had many wives, too many wives, which cost him. But in other words, He's a person who chose to do anything he could possibly do, indulge every desire, everything that he would want to accomplish to see what is worthwhile. Now for 
all of us, I'm sure there have been some things in life that you wanted to do. You wanted to acquire, you wanted to accomplish, you wanted to build, whatever it was. And things in and of themselves are not wrong. It could be a very godly thing to set out to do something. In fact, uh, I like to do carpentry work and I built a table for someone and it was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. And I did it just because I enjoy that work, but because I wanted to bless the people involved. And so in that case, my motives were godly and my journey of creating it was joyful. And even to this day, I'm still thankful for that opportunity. Well, you see, there's some things in this life you set out to do that they bless others and they honor God. But likewise, you can set out to do a lot of things where your motive is purely selfish. And that's the critical issue. When you're trying to undertake many, many things in life, like Solomon, is your motive to honor God and bless others, or is it purely selfish? Now, in the case of Solomon, he then said this immediately after those verses. He said, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem, right at the top of the heap. Nobody was in a better place. He said, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. That's the important thing because remember, God had given him extraordinary wisdom. And in fact, those who seek riches in this life sometimes forfeit wisdom. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes could behold. I refused my heart no pleasure. In other words, every possible desire that he indulged in that in some way. He said he took some delight in his labor, which really should say in watching the labor of others. He said, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done or the hands of others, it came to a place of saying everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind that nothing was gained under the sun. Now, it's interesting. I really believe that the vast majority of people in our culture would love to be Solomon, where they had all of the wealth, the resources, the opportunities to indulge every possible desire to accomplish everything they could. Yet, if you go down that path, you come to a place of emptiness, because you see, if you accomplish everything in this world, succeed in this world, inevitably you get to the place of saying, there must be something more. It's not enough. What you thought was gonna be so wonderful just seems empty. What at one time was the delight of your heart because it fascinated your eyes, Eh, not all that significant. That a person can go down a path in this life where you are a success. Would the world have said that Solomon was a success? Certainly. 
I mean, he's powerful, he's a king, he's wealthy. He's got everything that the world could want. Most people would have thought, I wish I could be Solomon. I'm sure there were a lot of people who were jealous of him, wanted his position. And yet Solomon could come to the place of saying, what I have done is chasing after the wind. Have you ever caught the wind? Now the wind's caught me a few times. I mentioned that I went to the cliffs of Moher there in Ireland and where there's this several hundred foot drop straight down and, and the day we were there, the winds were really whipping. I would say the average wind that day was 30 miles an hour and easily gust of 50 miles an hour. And I mean, you had to stand against the wind to keep it from pushing you back. Needless to say, I did not get to the edge of the cliffs. The wind can, it can catch you, but you can't catch it. That's a very clear statement. He's saying chasing after the wind is an empty journey. You cannot accomplish it. Everything he set out to do, what he thought would make him a success, had left him empty. Now that raises the question of what does define success? Do you think God would say to Solomon, based on all the things that he built there, well done, good and faithful servant? Probably not based on those things. Now, the things that Solomon did that were truly honoring God and a blessing to others, yes, God might say that to him. But you see, here's the problem. I think many of us, if not most of us, are chasing after the wind of this world, trying to define success the way the world defines it, and we're failing. See, real success would be one who loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind, who lives a righteous life, who is a representation of Christ in all that they do, who blesses others, who is a servant to others, who sacrifices their life, their resources to take care of others. In other words, one who had died to themselves and died to their self-centeredness in such a way that Christ was profoundly in them so that they are succeeding in the kingdom of God even if the world does not think they are a success. It's like the gentleman I worked with back in the hospital all those years ago. In the world's eyes, he may not have been a success, but in the eyes of God, he could have been an extraordinary one. And so the question clearly before all of us is this. Are you a success in the kingdom of God, in the eyes of God? Or are you merely chasing after the wind? See, I think a lot of people are trying to be a success at the wrong things. Because if you are a success in the world, but you forfeit your soul along the journey in terms of your family, then something's wrong. 
Not many of you would remember, but a few might. There was a guy by the name of J. Paul Getty, who um, many years ago was the richest man in the world. He was at the top of the list of rich people. He made his wealth in the oil and gas industry. And Getty left quite a legacy of failure because he was extraordinarily wealthy, but his family was a wreck. He had various wives, multiple children, ended up not with any of them, actually went and lived in England on an estate where he literally had a harem. And near the end of his son's life, one of his son's life, this son had had physical problems all of his life. He'd been weak and so forth. Near the end of his life, his father asked him what he wanted because his father would send gifts, expensive gifts to his various children if he liked them. And the son said he simply wanted his dad. He wanted to see him. But he never saw him before he died. When Getty died, he left an enormous estate in terms of value that stayed in the, the courts for, I think, over a decade. All these battles between different people who wanted a piece of the pie. And see, in the eyes of the world, he was an extraordinary success. But he may have been a complete failure. See, this is a critical question for any one of us. Are you trying to succeed at the wrong things? And are you failing at what's most important? And it is easy to be deceived and to invest your life trying to succeed at the wrong things. In other words, are you succeeding in following Christ, walking with him, coming to know him, hearing his voice, being guided by him? Are you succeeding at loving people around you? Now, I have to say, it is much easier for me to accomplish tasks and to undertake projects than it is to love people. It just doesn't come easy to me. I'd rather go build something. Loving people gets messy, sloppy. But it's what God calls us to do. And see, are you succeeding at loving people or just succeeding in the things of the world? This is why the scripture says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, rust can destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where those things can't rob you because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. See, that's a critical question. Where is your heart? What are you treasuring? Is your love for Christ so great that it empowers you to love others? Or do you love the world at the expense of others? I mean, there are examples all around us all the time. 
course, the worst example is in Ukraine now where some love power so much that they're willing to expend the lives of thousands to accomplish their goals. See, that's the ultimate example of trying to succeed in the world and totally failing simultaneously. But now, see, you, you could know Christ and have walked with him for a long time and you could still be failing in some way. See, if I were to ask the people right around you, the people who know you the best, the people who live with you all the time, are you a success at loving them and loving Christ? Or are you a success in the world and the rest of us don't see it. Now, I have a little game, I guess you could say. You know, it's easy to look at coaches in any sport and to say this one's a success and that one's not because we keep track of their records. You know, I'm glad they don't keep track of my teachings. You know, this one was good, that one was not so good. I've got a record of 500 or something like that. But I want to talk about this as it relates to success. Because here is the record of a coach. Spent 27 years at one institution. That was his win-loss record. Won 10 national championships, 15 conference championships. Was that person a success? Do you know what the answer is based on that information? We don't know. See, that information does not tell you if that person was a success. What that information tells you is that that person succeeded at doing things that the world considers important. But it doesn't tell us whether or not that person was a success. Now, it so happens, I've heard the story of this person, heard him speak, know his Christian testimony, and I would say he was a success. Now, the younger people here might go, I don't know who that was. Well, John Wooden was the coach of UCLA for 27 years, won 10 national championships, like the final four going on right now, won it 10 times. That did not make him a success. He was a godly man who lived it out in his coaching career, who loved his wife, who lived to be well into his 90s, who was a very genuine model of Christ throughout his entire life. Was he a success? I think so. Was he a success because of the things he accomplished that we put in statistics? No. He was a success because he loved people and modeled what it meant to walk as a Christian. You see, how he invested in the lives of young men that he coached was far more important than whether or not they won. Now, in honoring Christ, as you go through this life, God will give you success in things. But it's seek him first, and then he will give you all the things that you have need of. But if you seek the things of this world first, that can undermine everything else. Well, here's another one. This person spent 34 years at one school. That was their record. Won two national championships and 12 conference championships. Was that person a success? And the answer is, we don't know. 
Well, again, I know enough of the story. This coach was Bobby Bowden. He was at Florida State for 34 years. He had a motto, faith, family, and football. That was his motto. That's how he lived life, faith, family, and football. And he lived it out. He was genuine in it. He was very genuine in his relationship with Christ. So like the coach at Clemson now, you know, he's an outspoken Christian. The coach at Clemson is a little more flamboyant than Bobby Bowden, but Bobby Bowden was pretty flamboyant himself. But you know, the most interesting part about him was the consistency he had in all those years, not in his, one, his win-loss record, but in his model of Christ. He too lived a very long journey and then just died a couple years ago. And at his memorial service, there were countless young men who came who testified about their relationship with Christ because of Bobby Bowden. See, he wasn't a success because of what he gained in the world. He was a success because he invested in the lives of young men. In fact, in the world in which we live now, coaches often have a greater opportunity to invest in the lives of young men because many of them don't have fathers. That they serve as a father figure and can make an enormous investment. So I would say he was a success. Well, here's another one. This one spent 29 years at one school. There's a one loss record, extraordinarily good. Won three national championships and 11 conference championships. Most people look at that and say, that was success. I think that coach was a failure. And that's why I'm not gonna give you his name. But he was known to be extremely angry, a very volatile temper to be verbally abusive to just about anybody, even physically abusive to some of his players, had a track record of turmoil, lawsuits, was ultimately dismissed from his job, not because of failure in terms of the game, but failure essentially in character. He did not model Christ. Now, hopefully later in life he came to know Christ. I do not know. But certainly for most of his life, there was no evidence of the presence of God. And the world would say he's a success, but I would say, no, I think he was a failure. Then there's one more. This guy spent 32 years at one school. There's his one loss record. Notice anything unusual about that? That he lost a good bit more than he won. And in 32 years, he won one conference championship. He was not the coach at UT. In fact, how long would UT have kept him? Maybe three years, not 32. In fact, you even got to ask the question, how could a guy stay at one institution for 32 years and lose more than he wins? I've actually met the gentleman. He's a godly man. His name is Chris Smith. He stayed at the school because the school valued character more than statistics. The school's Grove City College in Pennsylvania they play Division Three football. It's a Christian school, a very strong Christian school if you're not familiar with it. 
and they valued character more than worldly success, so he stayed 32 years. In 32 years, he probably invested in the lives of hundreds of young men, imparting to them godly values. Is he a success? Oh, I think so. See, how the world defines success and how God defines it are different. How are you defining it? See, how are you defining success? This week I'm talking about what if I succeed. Next week I'm gonna talk about what if I fail. And they're very related. Because some people are very afraid of failing in places where it doesn't matter. All the while they are failing where it really matters. And vice versa. Toward the end of his life, when David was approaching death, he said this to Solomon. He said, I'm about to go away from this earth, so be strong, show yourself as a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees, commands, his laws, his requirements, everything written in the law of Moses, then you will prosper. Now, David knew very well, did he not? The scripture records him as a man after God's own heart. But simultaneously, we look at the track record of David's life. We know that sometimes David failed miserably with his adultery with Bathsheba then having her husband murdered, basically. So he's a man who could know very clearly what matters and what doesn't. And he's saying to his son, he said, do not fail to walk in the ways of God. He said, that's what is, is important. He didn't say to him, build great palaces or acquire great wealth or anything like that. He said, walk in the ways of God. Then you will prosper. And see, he knew very well when he had failed to do so and what the cost was. And see, if you actually, if you look at Solomon's life and say, was Solomon a success? When you get to the end, you have to go, well... Solomon was more of a success early in life than he was later in life. Because the scripture records that later in life, he started worshiping the pagan gods of some of the wives that he had taken. That's what got him in trouble was having too many wives. And the scripture records that in the later part of his life, he didn't stay true to the path that his father had laid out for him. Was, was Solomon a complete failure? No. Did he fail in some significant ways? Yeah. And see, that would be a warning to any of us. You could be on a good path for a long time and then veer off course even later in life. Do you know the people that I hold in the highest regard are the people that I've seen come to know Christ and walk consistently with him for a long period of time where the fruit in their lives keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Those are the ones I really respect. They're sort of sometimes sort of shooting stars in Christianity. Somebody for some reason become noteworthy. <clears throat> well, for me, I want to wait and see. 
Is there staying power? Are they walking with Christ? Do they love Christ more than they love the world? Now for all of us, I think it's a critical question and I hope it rings in your mind all week. Are you attempting to succeed at the things that really matter? Or are you attempting to succeed in places that are chasing after the wind? I don't know how it is for you, but it seems to me that most weeks in my mind, I sing the songs that we sing during worship. They just stay there. They just, it's just what happens. And so I hope that this question does the same thing in your mind. Are you attempting to succeed at the things that really matter? Or are you trying to succeed in the world with things that really don't have eternal value? Let us pray. Lord, you know the hearts, the motives of every person here. And I do pray that your conviction would be upon every one of us in any place where we are chasing after the wind and that we would recognize what matters most is chasing after you, to know you, to walk with you, to honor you in everything we say and do and to love every person that you put in our paths. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.